0: You're listening to the Safety of Work podcast, episode 68. Today we're asking the questions, are safety cases in an impending crisis? Let's get started. everybody. My name's David Proven and I'm here with Drew Ray and we're from the Safety Science Innovation Lab at Griffith University. Welcome to the Safety of Work podcast. Each fortnight now, we ask a question in relation to the safety of work or the work of safety and we examine the evidence surrounding it. So Drew, what's today's question?
1: David, today we're going to be talking about safety cases. I think this is the first episode we've discussed safety cases or at least the first we've directly discussed them. So I thought we'd start off with just a little bit of background before we get into the paper that we're talking about. Safety cases have been around for a long time. I think the paper that we're reading today suggests that they first were introduced for nuclear power in the 1950s, which sounds about right. They've certainly spread through different industries. So very popular originally in nuclear and then chemical and then oil and gas, and now uh, defence, rail... I've even seen some construction safety cases.
0: So, Drew, I think we mentioned safety cases as a, as a recommendation, really, or as an idea when we did the episode on the Dreamworld incident. And we're seeing it at least in, in the Australian domains now that safety cases will spread into uh, thrill rides or amusement park devices. Um, but there are a couple of big accidents that started shaping Uh, the formal thinking around these ideas. Do you want to give some background to them?
1: Yeah, so so safety cases have always been linked heavily to major accidents. I, I think the reason is that when we have a major accident, we're faced with the fact that regulators are very limited in their knowledge, resources and access. And so people are sort of trying to work out, well, how do we make it possible for regulators to control this thing, which is out of control? And so the response is to shift the burden of proof and to say, well, regulators can't control safety. The company needs to control safety. So what we'll do is we'll make the company have to convince the regulator that they are managing safety correctly. And ultimately, that's the central idea of a safety case is an obligation on a company to convince a client or an independent assessor or a regulator that the system is safe. And that convincing usually sort of takes fairly standardized formats, mostly around producing a bunch of evidence, evidence about the system or evidence about the processes you're following, and then an argument on top of that evidence to show how it all fits together. Um, So a safety case then ends up being, it's sometimes called a living document, uh, which I think is just a way of getting around the fact that it's a document, (laughs) but a document that's supposed to be regularly updated so that it constantly reflects the current argument, current evidence, current state of the system.
0: So, Drew, for our listeners that aren't familiar with with safety cases uh, or aren't in any of those industries that that use safety cases, it's like you said, it's literally an organized making organization making the case for safety for their asset or their operation. And so that, like you said, they take some fairly consistent formats, but this paper sort of points out that all of these safety cases start with a description of the system. So, or a description of the facility or or, or what is actually being what an argument is actually being made for. And then after that description of the system that the safety case is covering, then a risk process of what what are the hazards in that system and what are all of the control measures that are in place for all of those hazards and why is the overall risk as a sum of all of the individual risks, why is that a tolerable and a safe assessment? So Drew, would you give any more description on what, if for someone who hadn't picked up a safety case document before, and these can be hundreds and hundreds of pages but or, or maybe thousands of pages, any more to provide a bit of context.
1: As we'll get onto a little bit later, it's not essential that a safety case be based around hazards and controls. Um, That's a very common format, particularly with uh, major hazardous facilities in oil and gas, that they base it around, assess the risks, show that we've controlled the risks. But the fundamental idea is that you can make any type of argument, at least in principle, So, you know, instead of showing that you've assessed the risk, controlled the risk, you might also make an argument that says, well, our previous system was safe and we haven't changed anything major, therefore the new system is safe. Anything that counts as a logical argument with supporting evidence supposedly could make up a safety case. In practice, they tend to rely heavily on evidence of having identified, assessed and managed hazards, just because that's the way most people try to achieve safety and safety cases tend to reflect the safety management processes.
0: Yeah. So Drew, if that's sort of some context, the start of the paper that we're going to discuss today talks about the fact that, well, I suppose the, the position that there's quite a large amount of research on safety cases and, and this research focuses on a lot of the tactical aspects of safety cases, how to structure them, how they should be reviewed how these arguments should be formalized mathematically or how these arguments might be better generated automatically. But then goes on to point out that there's very little research that sort of evaluates the safety case methods and practices as a whole. And to answer that question that we're all about on this podcast, which is do safety cases actually work in terms of improving safety?
1: David, in preparation for this episode, I did actually go back and look at a few papers and even a couple of PhDs that deal with safety cases, just to see how they position their work and justify it. And it's fascinating because safety cases didn't come from safety theory. They came from this practical regulatory need. And so you look at how people justify the work. They basically start off by saying, well, safety cases are a thing. We have safety cases, we have to do safety cases. And so my question then is, how do we do safety cases better? Or how do I do safety cases for autonomous systems? Or how do I move from safety cases to security cases? Or how do I automate safety cases? But they start with this assumption that safety cases must work, or at least must exist, because they do exist. And that's, that's fairly common to a lot of safety activities. The activity comes first, and then the research into the activity comes later. And the research is always trying to build and expand the activity rather than to answer fundamental questions. So we get all of these implicit claims that safety cases improve safety or that safety cases don't improve safety or that safety cases are cost effective or they're not cost effective. But we never, we we start with those claims. We don't come up with those claims as the result of having conducted research.
0: And so there are some claims in the literature, Drew, about safety cases, and it seems like there's there's a group of claims that people say they that safety cases work to improve safety. So, so authors will claim that, like you said, they exist, but that they also improve safety. Then there's almost a group of claims that say that safety cases you know may improve safety, but they're not worth the cost that's in, involved in developing and maintaining these cases in terms of safety benefits. So that resource that goes into those thousands of pages of documentation might be better allocated to safety improvement efforts elsewhere in the system or and then there's a there's a there's some claims that safety cases actually might have negative effects on safety so do we want to talk a little bit about the example of how some of these claims might might work for for how because i found it sort of fascinating how these people claim that safety cases can have a negative impact because if people have made a case for safety and it's been accepted by a regulator they might have an overconfidence bias that their system is actually safer than it actually is in reality.
1: So, so that is the argument that is made, is that trying to show that your system is safe sounds like a sort of recipe for confirmation bias um, and sounds like the opposite of hazard identification, which is supposed to find out how your system might not be safe. So you can sort of understand where people who are instinctively anti-safety cases are coming from. I mean, in fact, there was a major accident involving the Nimrod aircraft and hadn't Cave in his report afterwards suggested, you know, maybe we should call them unsafety cases and focus on how do we prove that our system is not safe, which I, I think you sort of understand at a superficial level where they're coming from. But it's a little bit paradoxical because you why do we try to identify hazards if not making an implicit claim that by trying to invest identify hazards and control them, we are making our system safer. So I think for any safety activity, there is always an implicit claim that it is safe. And that's what the people who promote safety cases would say, is that we're always got these implicit claims that we're safe. So surely it is better to make those implicit claims explicit so that the regulator can check them so that they can argue about them so that we can find the gaps in them. But as we'll sort of get into with this paper, the point is that that's not the way to find out what works or not work to have high level arguments about what logically should or shouldn't work. Why don't we just work out what does or doesn't work rather than what should or shouldn't? And so I thought this paper gave us a sort of good discussion about why we can't just do that and maybe some alternatives to what we can do instead.
0: Yeah, so I'll get you to introduce the paper in in a second, Drew. And we know, like you said, we know from this podcast or our listeners will know from this podcast is it can be very hard to answer this question of do safety cases work because you know do they prevent major incidents well we never have enough major incidents to to, to know and we never know the impact that the safety case was having on on the i suppose the causality of a of a major accident so i think it's, it, it may be a question that we never we never answer but that's not the point because what we the question that we want to answer is how does the safety case approaches actually work inside organization is the safety case approach better or worse than alternative methods for for checking and validating the safety of our systems and so to do that we actually need to know how people currently develop and use safety cases in their organization and what are what are the work practices the concerns the needs the constraints the problems of these practitioners if you like when they're developing managing maintaining approving and reviewing safety cases in their organization so drew I'll get you to introduce the paper because you know, you know, you know that you know this domain very, very well. Uh, you know the people very well. You know the universities very well, where these ideas sort of were first formalised. So, do you want to introduce the paper?
1: Sure. So, so the paper is called "Safety Cases: An Impending Crisis." Uh, the authors are Ibrahim Hubley, Rob Alexander, and Richard Hawkins. They're from the University of York, which is my old hangout. And in fact, they're from the research group that I used to be part of there six or seven years ago. It's, it's worth pointing out, and I think this is a really interesting thing about the paper and one of its limitations, that this entire research group is dependent on the existence of safety cases. So they pretty much invented the safety case in its modern form. And they've done a lot of work advocating the adoption of safety cases. So... It'd be really interesting to see whether they are capable of following through on some of their intended forms of research sort of suggested in this paper, because it's a bit of a conflict of interest when you go and ask someone, why do you do safety cases? And their answer is because you told us to do it, Uh, then makes it sort of a little bit circular when you try to uncover how they work. These three particular authors I have a lot of respect for. I would say that they are the three people within the group who most consistently, whilst following along with the overall research mission, have maintained a healthy scepticism about the evidence base and have always been concerned about making sure that what they teach and promote is grounded not just in ideas, but is grounded in evidence for what works and doesn't work. It's not itself an empirical paper. They haven't done a study here. What they're doing is they're basically setting out almost like a manifesto or a research agenda for how they might go about studying. So this is, you could imagine, the first step in a research program is set out their philosophical position. I mean I thought that position itself was interesting and worth discussing.
0: No, I agree, Drew. And this is a February 2021 um, conference paper. So and it's on research and it's available on ResearchGate Gate. So our listeners will be able to access it and it's um it's well it's 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 current it's about as current as it gets so so drew look the paper like you said the paper sort of laying out the s- state of affairs when it comes to safety cases where where safety cases have come from where they're at and and what might be the the research opportunities to to move forward and so the paper talks about three important aspects uh that that any research and theorizing around safety cases needs to be able to understand and the first is that We need to establish the real world safety assurance needs. So what are the actual needs? You mentioned the regulators earlier, Drew. What are the actual needs that safety cases have the potential to meet? And how do we know exactly what these needs that are being met are and the context in which these needs get fulfilled by safety cases? So what do engineers need? What do regulators need? What do organizations need? What do communities and societies need from safety cases? And how do the safety cases actually address those needs? The second aspect that the authors talk to is creating theories that capture how safety case practices lead to delivering on those outcomes or those needs so really trying to understand how safety cases are are working inside organizations and how they're delivering on what the stakeholders need from those processes and to theorize around that to look for generalizations and patterns and 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 consistent practices and and make sense of that that practical safety case world that's happening in in organizations every day and then the third question, which is where I suppose we start to get really interested in moving a little bit beyond the descriptive side of establishing the needs and and how safety cases meet them, but really looking at uh, research math- methods that answer efficacy and efficiency type questions. So, is there evidence now that these safety assurance needs are actually being satisfied in a meaningful or a or a valid and reliable way? So, Drew, these are these important aspects. Are these the important aspects that you'd think are uh, are directly relevant for forward research?
1: I, I think they are very relevant if you come from a mindset that research in safety is about creating safety processes and activities that people can use to meet their needs. I have a sort of meta concern which is that I think this is a little bit disingenuous about the role that academics play in creating those needs in the first place. So It's one thing to say, you know, what are the needs that we have to satisfy regulators? But if those regulators are being educated by our universities or are being persuaded that we need safety cases... Um, then it's a little bit circular because we have created the need by our advocacy of a particular technique. You you could say the same thing about risk assessment. So we have a need to create a risk assessment. Why do we need a risk assessment? Because the regulator insists that we have a risk assessment. Why does the regulator insist we have a risk assessment? Because safety people told regulators that that's the way to do safety. Um, And so I I personally think that to understand safety, we need to go a level up from this instrumental, we have a need, what sort of process or activity can meet those needs. Sort of understand the whole ecosystem of assurance. But that's not what most people are interested in. I think most people have a much more instrumental demand driven. Certainly, if you're in an organization, you're not interested in what are the sort of deeper forces that cause the, regu- the regulator to ask you for something. The regulator is asking you, you want to know what process will adequately meet that. Um, and so, yeah, if you're talking about just a sort of functional, then asking, you know, what's the need? How do we meet that need? And does it in fact work? I think are the right questions to ask
0: and I think the intention behind this the overall push in this paper is to I suppose you know Rob was one of the co-authors on our manifesto of reality based safety science paper and you can see this is a this is an effort to get the research community around safety cases to think beyond maybe just some of the tools and techniques and practices within within safety cases and start to look at we'll talk later start to look at case studies descriptive research really uh really looking at the practitioner perspective on these things rather than maybe just the the theoretical risk perspective.
1: So so David, we, we talked, I'm not sure whether it was last episode or a couple of episodes ago, about sort of how to make sense of arguments in the safety community. And I thought we might sort of practice a little bit of that here by talking about the context in which people started advocating for safety cases. So as we sort of mentioned, safety cases have been around since the 1950s two particular accidents that drove them forward were Piper Alpha in 1988 and Seveso in 1976. Seveso sort of pushed mainland Europe towards safety cases and Piper Alpha dragged the UK sort of kicking and screaming into that same space. Uh, In both cases, it was this demand for accountability towards the public and the regulator rather than trusting the regulator to come in and inspect companies and do so effectively. But then there was this movement in the 1990s to start going beyond just the broad notion of a safety case to really quite formally representing them. This was a big trend in engineering, was engineering was moving much more towards model-based development, the 1990s were when everyone had software tools to do things and people were coming up with new, bright new software tools for, to support anything, to support engineering, to support software development, to support you know, documents. This is when you know, Microsoft Word started going through version after version, adding version, adding in more and more functionality. And the idea was basically doing the same thing with safety. To get towards, you create a model of the system, you describe formally what safety looks like, And then that lets you very thoroughly, possibly even automatically, check that the system you're developing is safe. You know, the dream was we could press a button on our design and it would come back saying, ding, ding, ding. No, it's not safe because of part number 57 in this spot. Fix that and you've made your system safe. Um, Now, we never quite got there, but that trend towards making safety analysis, this formal This formal thing with its own notations, its known rules, its own mathematics uh, was becoming very popular. And so safety cases was a way of making safety arguments into that shape. Um, So we had these theories about how arguments are formally constructed and we turned them into notations, such as claim argument evidence or goal structure notation. Two particular groups, um, Adelard, who did a lot of selling of software tools and particularly there, John Bishop and Robin Bloomfield, and University of York, the safety research group. Um, and the original people there were Tim Kelly and John McDermott. They're both you're know, quite senior and moved on. Uh, now we've got that sort of new generation coming up and starting to challenge those original ideas in this current paper.
0: So, you've gone back to the source. And so the first two things, I think, if we went back to that episode on how to resolve debates in, in safety science, uh, we've... We, you've you've gone back to the original source you've explained what the original sources have said about safety cases and so let's let's move forward now to maybe the different research that's done in the safety case area do you want to talk about uh, cuz you you want do you want to talk about the research that goes on across the domain
1: sure so, so I'm extract, extracting this directly from the paper they give quite a good list of all of the different types of research people do on safety cases so we've got research that gets done on notations So different ways of writing safety cases, different ways of structuring arguments, different ways of representing those. Uh, There's research on processes. How should you produce safety cases? Uh, You know, they get big and complex. So maybe how do we modularize them? And how do we reuse them? And how do we check them? Um, There's work on sort of like fundamentally what is a safety case? What's the sort of underlying meaning or metamodel or representation? Uh, work on automation, how do we create tools to make safety cases, tools to analyze safety cases, Uh, possibly even, you know, formalize them so we can start to prove properties of them and do automatic checking. Uh, There's lots of work on producing domain-specific safety cases, particular patterns of arguments or particular ways of arguing about certain things. Uh, There's ways of going beyond Cases for safety to general assurance cases, maybe cases for like security cases or reliability cases. And then stuff on confidence, how to represent uncertainty in safety cases. Now, you've been keeping track. Notice that every one of these bits of research makes safety cases bigger or more complex or more broadly applicable. But it never goes backwards and asks, should we do safety cases? It always sort of takes as the assumption that this is a solution, and it says, how do we make this a better solution? So, as the paper points out, there's been very, very little serious research into whether safety cases are valuable. That's just taken as a given. And they point out that, you know, it's not a totally empty research space. It's just that the research that's done is done by people who are heavily invested in safety cases. So, they're just pointing out where they've used them successfully. Or it's done by people who have not heavily invested in safety cases who are saying, well, here is an accident where they had a safety case and claiming that safety cases don't work. So it's not what you'd call convincing evidence to actually change your mind. It's by people that you probably already agree with.
0: Yeah, I found this section, section three of the paper, drew on the value, titled The Value of Safety Cases and sort of makes those two claims that there's people who, who claim to use safety cases successfully and people who point to, to the accidents that happen with organisations and and operations that had safety cases that were were approved by regulators and and supposedly convincing. So the authors then go on to say look while this evidence base for safety cases is poor so do they make our system safer or 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 not. There's these other they start to pull in or, and they start to cherry pick a little bit some some other safety theories around there to say look maybe we we spend a lot of effort in safety cases lots of money um, I spent a bit of time in the oil and gas industry and a lot of consultants, a lot of risk engineers, a lot of money um, preparing, maintaining, updating safety case documents. And so the authors are just flagging the possibility, I think, in this paper that if we don't know if we're getting the value out of it, that's and, and there are other ways to realize safety value in our systems, maybe that resource that we're spending on safety cases could be uh, used more beneficially in the organization. But again, I don't think they make that claim strong enough. I mean, that claim is not made in the paper strong enough to say, "Hey, let's redirect our efforts away from safety cases." It just kind of like puts this this flag out there as a as a possibility.
1: David, I think I know exactly why. Because of the conference they're presenting this at, they can't directly say what they're probably thinking, which is that everyone who criticises safety cases has their own alternative to flog. So you, every criticism of safety cases comes with, "Don't spend all of your time producing all of these big safety cases." Spend all of your time using my technique instead. So, yeah, they they can't say that explicitly, but I think that is the implied difficulty here. And it's a valid thing, you know, of course, we should be spending our time on whatever thing works best. But at the moment, the research is always done by people who are making claims in support of their preferred method. And we've got very little by way of fair comparison.
0: I think there's a, the, the paper then talks about impediments. So they say, okay, so why don't we know more about the effectiveness of safety cases? And they point to these issues like, you know, just the, the the lack of public domain safety case examples, many, many, many places around the world, you can't get these documents. They don't exist in the public domain. People don't share their, their safety case data uh, with anyone that they don't have to share it with, like regulators. Which means it's very hard to experiment with something as perceived as so safety critical and central to safety of major hazard facilities to start saying let's start running some experimental trials about what we do with with safety cases. So there's there's a lot there's a lot of headwind to make progress in in researching safety cases. Um, but Drew, you've had a couple of students and current students dabbling in this area. Um, is it is it as hard as it's made out to be to try to research safety cases?
1: Yes, it is, and no, it isn't. So yes, it is hard to get enough examples to start doing things like direct comparisons. But I think the biggest problem is that the people who have most access to that material have most vested interest in not rocking the boat. So, you know, a great example is the UK Health and Safety Executive is sitting on a massive database of safety cases for major hazard installation. They've got access not just to the safety cases, they've got access to the review history And to the audit history of all of those installations and to the incident history and the inspection history. And the last thing they want is to generate any internal evidence that suggests that they're wasting people's time and money. They have no interest at all in making that available in a form that can be researched or in researching it themselves. Um, Interestingly, the people at York probably have better access than most people. But they're, you know, 20 or 30 academic careers riding on safety cases. There's not a lot of interest in a sort of unified effort to gather together all of the examples and start thoroughly testing it at that fundamental level that might shake the basis. Now, I don't mean to be cynical about that. I mean, people research what they think is going to create benefit. And anyone who's got this vested interest has also a strong belief that what they're doing works. And so it seems like a waste of time to challenge something that you think already is working. The people who are challenging tend to be more the outsiders or people with other techniques who don't have access to the data.
0: So I thought it was quite good that the paper sort of pointed out some of these challenges and, and some of the reality of research, Drew. But uh, they then went on to talk about what to do, what what to do with this. So I think we both we both like the fact that they they didn't throw their hands up in the air here. The rest of the paper after this section is really laying out example research that could be done, talking about case study research, really trying to actually solve for some of these challenges.
1: Yeah, a lot of people, particularly at the engineering end of safety, they think that we have to do randomized controlled experiments that prove that things are safe or not safe, or we can do nothing. And so when we can't do the big experiment, they don't want to do anything at all. And I love the fact that they actually, in this paper, start thinking, well, what can we do And how do we make what we can do rigorous and worthwhile? So I really like the way that they've laid out a plan forward. Possibly I might just go into a little bit of their way of thinking about it to present that plan. So their sort of starting point is they say that when you're doing something that is as big and complex and as far reaching as safety cases, the chances that it does exactly nothing is pretty small. Even if you hate them, you're probably thinking that they do bad things. And even if you're sceptical about them, you probably think maybe they do a mix of good things and bad things. And if you like them, you think that they're doing good things. So it's not, that's not actually the question. The question is not this, you know, does it do nothing or does it do something? So we don't need to do that sort of hypothesis, null hypothesis testing that we do when we're asking, like, does a drug work? Um, The way they talk about that in the paper is they talk about variance theories versus process theories. I don't quite know. David, do you know where this language comes from?
0: No, it was new to me, this language, and I'm not even sure I completely understand it myself, Drew.
1: Yeah, I I don't know if it's something to do with the fact that they're coming out of a sort of engineering computer science world, because we'd have very different labels for this in social science. But their idea is that a variance theory is about the relationship between two variables. So if you do more A, you'll get more B. If you do a safety case, your system will have lower risk. Or if you do a safety case, the regulator will be happier. Or if you do a review, you'll have fewer errors. So, a relationship between two things. Um, And that's the sort of thing where you do a blind experiment and test what the relationship is. Um, Whereas a process theory is something that explains how something works. And they say we don't need to create variance theories in order to be able to create process theories. And process theories will take us most of the way we want to go. So, instead of saying, you know, asking the question, do safety cases work? You change that question to how do safety cases work, or what do safety cases do? And so those sorts of how theories don't need experiments; they can be studied descriptively, or what with sort of testing type case studies or intervention type studies.
0: Yeah, Drew, I, I was more familiar with talking about yeah, I hadn't, but maybe maybe this is language that's used to describe theories as opposed to research methods because we'd use descriptive research methods or experimental research methods or whatever we were we were doing, but um. I, I like I like that they've drawn out that distinction because it will open up. it does open up new possibilities for the rest of the paper now to say, well, actually, we said in the manifesto for reality-based safety science, first describe you know what happens in the real world. So they're saying, okay, let's 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 talk a bit about process theories and explain how 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 do safety cases actually work, rather than us spending all of our time talking about how we think that they should work in a normative kind of way.
1: Yeah, So if you if you're just interested in inputs and outputs then they say that, you know, there's too many possible relationships between them and every one of them would need a massive experiment. Whereas if you've got theories about how things work, then you can do much more sort of smaller, subtle tests of those hows. They do say, and they're still clearly coming from this very science engineering idea that research is about testing theories. Um, So they're still following with this process. You put a theory out there and test it, um, which is not quite how we would describe doing it. But they do say that, you know, you can't just randomly test theories. You pick out theories that are plausible and you pick out those plausible theories by first asking how people think things work or what are the reasons why people do things. And if we can turn the reasons why people do things into theories and then test those theories, then we've got good potential for changing how people do things by sort of disrupting their ways that they think things work. Um, You know, if you imagine that vaccines cause harm because vaccines contain little green men that are going to run through your bloodstream, then it makes sense. Let's do research that tests, do these little green men exist? Because if we can disrupt your idea that little green men exist, then we can disrupt your fear of vaccines. If we can disrupt your belief that doing a safety case magically makes your system safer, then we can give you a more reasoned belief that it makes your system safer by increasing your ability to spot errors. Or we can then test that theory, does it increase your ability to spot errors, and say, no, it doesn't quite work like that doesn't help you spot errors, but it helps you maybe spend more time. And maybe that spending more time on design makes your system safer. So you just sort of progressively work through ideas and test them until you find out actually how something works or doesn't.
0: Yeah, and I think they also suggested, well, they did also suggest ways of testing some of those different theories and approaches, like almost by one example of almost by doing three parallel safety cases using three different methods for the same system and looking at the outcomes that get generated by those different methods, and then almost uh, uh, tracking that system forward through time. And so you'd almost be running three processes concurrently over the same system and and seeing if you get similar outcomes, different outcomes, and why things might be similar or different, and then what might happen with that system over time, and what of those safety case techniques had ways or or differences of being able to link to the way the system was actually currently operating.
1: So so we, we might talk a little bit about that example, David, I don't know if it's obvious just how cheeky they're being with the selection of this example. So it's a thing called the McDermott Square. And to fully understand the context, you need to know that McDermott was the senior researcher and head of group and then head of school for these researchers for most of their career. And the McDermott Square is something that has been appearing in teaching slides for at least 30 years. So these people have had to present course after course that's got this square up here. And now they're putting it in this paper as an example of something which needs to be tested as a theory. So they're sort of showing how we can take current explanations for how things work. And instead of just teaching it as fact, we can turn it into a theory with a set of hypotheses and then test those hypotheses. So the McDermott Square is just really a fairly simple piece of guidance. It says that where you have a unfamiliar problem and an unfamiliar solution to that problem, then you've got to have a much more extensive safety case where you've got a well-understood problem with a well-understood solution. Then you can get away with just a very simple safety case based on existing standards. Now, it seems to make sense, but as always, things that seem to make sense, you can actually start to deconstruct and say, okay, so is that really true? What does that imply? It says there's a sort of optimal size and complexity of safety. That if your safety case is too complex, it's going to be costing you money and causing disadvantages. If it's too simple, it's not going to be doing a good enough job. Okay, so let's actually test that out. Let's see if we can see whether when a safety case is too complicated. Let's see if we can see when a safety case is too simple. Let's go and find those too simple or too complex safety cases and look for the harms that they're causing. Um, let's see if we change that situation, if we make it more optimal, according to the McDermott Square, do we get rid of the harms and increase the benefits?
0: And I think in these theories, I, I quite like the McDermott Square. And when people look at the paper, I thought, okay, well, it's not a bad way of thinking about how we need to approach different problems and different solutions with our safety case or our safety arguments and arguments in terms of actually the um, the, the preparation of the, the case for safety of our systems. But like with much of this other space, it, the authors call out in this that there just hasn't been a lot of research to test any of these models or, or to actually test the claims that any of these models make.
1: David, I think you'll appreciate the um, point that they go on to make, which could easily be a line straight from our own manifesto saying that, you know, it's, it's clear that such studies are infeasible to conduct without the direct engagement of practising engineers, users and regulators, and without access to the real development and operational settings. So they're, they're very embedded in this idea that to do this research, it can't just be researchers coming in from the outside and testing things or setting up trials, experiments and case studies. It needs to be a sort of collaborative effort with people who are currently doing the work with people who are going to come in and ask some of these harder questions about how is the work working and perhaps with a sympathetic understanding to how do the people who do the work think that the work works and sort of capturing some of those folk theories turning them into formal hypotheses then making changes and in interventions to start testing them out
0: and I might drew if I may I put you on the I might put you on the spot something that I've I've thought about for a while with safety cases is is I don't know how familiar you are with the way that um, therapeutic goods and or like food and drug approvals get made or particularly pharmaceutical and medical device decisions get made in terms of the approvals for those products on the market where they do independent clinical trials. And those independent trials are run by not by the the, the company that is developed the technology or developed the drug. They're run by independent certified researchers who uh, the company then contracts to go and work with the doctors and the hospitals and actually run the trials and report back on the efficacy of of the device or the drug. And we see this model in with independent certifiers in the building and construction industry and things like that. I just, I wonder, I wonder whether, and then making a lot of that information publicly available. I wonder if what would be interesting to know is whether some of those ideas could be applied to safety cases where if the safety case actually had to be almost facilitated by an independent party that was independently certified as opposed to by the company and their consultants.
1: I think that's one of the pieces of folk wisdom that creates a sort of perfect hypothesis for testing. So a lot of the advocates for safety cases would say, look, safety cases lose their value when you outsource them. That if you just get someone else to create a safety case for your system, then that becomes very much demonstrated safety. It's you know, doing assurance for the sake of satisfying the regulator, not for the sake of making your system safer. And they would say, you know, the important thing is that safety cases start early so that the co-creation of the safety case influences and improves the development. Okay, so there we have two different theories about how they work. So that's a perfect opportunity for doing the type of mechanism-based testing that they're advocating. You, One mechanism says the independence allows a sort of degree of checking and evaluation and finding things. The other says that, Having insiders do it creates that sort of checking and evaluation and influences the design. Um, So let's see which one actually happens. You know, both theories claim ultimately some sort of design improvement as a result of the investigation. So let's look for which mechanism actually links to the design improvement.
0: And why I called that example out, Drew, and I think like Haddon Cave also mentions this with with Nimrod um, and that review is that the nature of the commercial relationship between, even if a company is outsourcing it, like you said, it's demonstrated safety because the company that's getting outsourced to is getting paid by the company who they're providing the, the service back to. And that's a little bit like a, a company who goes and gets certified against ISO 45001. They're paying the company to come and certify them and, and it's in the certification company's interest to give the client what they want in terms of that certification. So I think, um, whereas I suppose that's a little bit different, it's a subtle difference, not a subtle, it's it's a very big difference to that medical type of model where the person gets paid to run the trial, the person doesn't get paid to confirm the results back to the, you know, to actually provide a confirmatory response back. And so I think even then you might even have three or four different models to go and test what happens when a company runs it internally, what happens when it's run by a consultant the company engages what happens when it's run or facilitated by a completely independent party. And like you said, we we should be able to test some of these things.
1: I I think one of the difficulties with something like a safety case compared to, say, a drug trial, and this is one of the reasons why I am personally sceptical that they work in the way that people think that they work, is that a drug trial, a regulator might not be able to run a drug trial. But a regulator can probably read and understand the results of the trial. The difficulty with safety analysis of complex systems is that it is possible that our regulators lack the capability even to look at the finished product of the safety analysis and to understand it. And so the risk is that the safety cases, this supposed way of abstracting away from the design to represent it to the regulator, that representation itself becomes so complex that only experts can understand it. And so we end up with this second hand that the regulator then needs to ask an independent third party just to read the safety case on their behalf. And once we get to that point, we know that the original regulatory theory itself is not holding up. So we should be fairly sceptical about anything that then rests off that regulatory
0: theory. Yeah, great conclusion and insight. I I like the way that you've you've described that. And again, all things that we should be testing and understanding. So Drew, let's talk about the conclusions of the paper and then um, a few practical takeaways. So we've got this paper that talks about safety ca- titled Safety Cases an Impending Crisis and talks about all this research that's been done on the, the tactics and the practices, but this absence of research that's asked the big questions and also the how, do that, how does it actually work in, in reality questions.
1: So David, quickly just before we move on, I want to ask you a quick question about the title of the paper. They, they said an impending crisis and then they pointed out this problem with lack of evidence for the efficacy of safety cases. What do you think is the crisis that they were referring to?
0: Is that a, that's, a great, that's a great question. So safety cases and impending crisis. I, one assumption that I'd have is that, it's, that safety cases are kind of maybe built on a house of cards and, or like a house of cards. And the crisis might come to if we suddenly realize that safety cases don't do what we think that they do then we've got all these open questions about these hugely hazardous systems that we have been taking comfort in the safety case. And if we find out that we shouldn't be taking comfort in that, then that's a massive crisis of confidence in, in our major system, major hazardous systems around the world.
1: But if we've been using them since the 1950s and we've never had the body of evidence for them, where is the impending crisis coming from? I want to tell you my pet, I guess I asked the question because I want to tell you my pet theory. Okay. I think it's us. I, I think there is a new school of safety scientists who are starting to ask fundamental questions about the field. You know, when I say us, I don't mean like you and me personally, but I think we are, and maybe I'm being a bit optimistic here, but I think we are part of a bit of a movement which is starting to come back to asking some of the fundamental questions. And I think that is the crisis that they're referring to, The this safety, safety work, which is based on, well, this is the way we've always done it. Let's make it more complex. Let's make it more sophisticated. Let's make it more model driven. Let's make it automated. Let's apply it to more situations. That, that house of cards is finally being challenged by safety researchers who are coming back and saying, yeah, but does it work? How does it work? Let's look at what's going on and let's try to fundamentally understand and build some theory from the ground up and i think that's the crisis is the it's a crisis for people who've been doing that sort of research and people who have been relying on the products of that research and so I, yeah i mean yeah, crisis is always an interesting framing of things because it's a disaster for some people and a success or opportunity for other people
0: yeah quite possibly yeah so whether it's a a crisis for a section of practitioner and and research of the practitioner and research community that their 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 work is based on these these practices uh in organizations or whether it's a crisis of, of confidence because if some things that everyone just believes work uh, are shown not to do what we think they do then that creates a lot of uncertainty and we know in safety that uncertainty is uh, is, is generally a crisis so it's, it'd be interesting to see maybe listeners can also share what they think um the, the authors if they get a chance to read the paper the authors might be referring to in terms of the crisis
1: so let's let's move on to conclusions I'm a little bit disappointed. They start with the usual sort of weasel words when people talk about evidence in safety, which is they say that the fact that we don't have evidence for the value of something doesn't automatically mean it doesn't have value. Coming from a scientific point of view, I think that should be our default assumption is absent evidence of value of something, we should not assume it has value. But I can understand why they are cautious about wanting to say, let's throw this out because it doesn't have evidence. Uh, Particularly given that what they're trying to preach is for the community of people who do use these practices to be involved in the research of those them. So, you know, they're they're trying to convert people who might be persuadable.
0: And I think because they safety cases don't do nothing inside organizations, whether it's administratively or socially or, um, or culturally. So I think Drew, you've been involved in safety cases a lot in different, different roles in your career. I've been involved in safety cases um, for a long time in, in roles in my career. And we know that they have impacts inside organisations at management levels, at engineering levels, at at safety professional levels. We know some of the social and political and organisational impacts in my experience, at least are sometimes a bit more impactful in those areas than they are on actual physical risk reduction of the operation. But, um, but they definitely do things inside companies.
1: No, no, thank, thank you for that, David. That's a good way of putting it is, so when we talk about whether something has value or is effective, that is itself a value statement. Um, as researchers, what we should be interested in is we know that this does something, so there is obviously something valuable to be found out by studying it, um, and we shouldn't you try. We shouldn't even try to influence practice until we understand better what it is that is happening that we are trying to influence. But what we need is a way to theorise about how they work um, and to learn from comparisons between them and other approaches. Although, yeah, the, the way the authors phrase this in the paper, they clearly sort of still got this goal means end mindset that says that they, you know, they think that there is a need to do something functional here. And it's really a competition between different practices to see which practices are capable of achieving this end. So they are still sort of, even when they talk about descriptive theorizing, they're doing it with the ultimate goal of finding out what works best and then trying to persuade practitioners to adopt what works best.
0: I think, Drew, so the authors, they have a, they, have, they lay out their final thoughts at the end of the conclusion and just say, look, we can only really move forward, like you said, with collaboration between the safety engineers and, and the researchers. We need access to these industrial settings. We need access to the safety cases. We need to understand what assurance needs are being met by these safety cases. We need to have hypothesis-driven studies, either descriptive or experimental, but um, the more practical, probably the more practical, the better. We need a genuinely cumulative research program, so we actually need to build on the evidence the research and the research. We don't just need everyone running off with their different techniques and and trying to develop develop new techniques uh, and then basically, when researchers are running off and talking about new notations and new formalisms and new tools and this thing, they should actually justify what safety assurance need that is being met by them investing that research effort going and uh, trying to develop these new ideas or or supplementary approaches to. Existing safety case approaches, and then really just getting practicing engineers to uh, to report their experiences and 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 get involved in um, in empirical research work. So, Drew, I think that's a fairly fairly nice just it's I mean it's a good list of of considerations for for safety case research. Did you do you find that it's what needs to happen?
1: I think it is useful certainly for researchers who are coming into engineering-type safety research programs, where those programs are very much driven around the creation of tools and techniques. I think this is going to be a very attractive way of slipping in more rigorous and, as they say, sort of progressive so that we can build up theories rather than each new technique adding to the weight of things that need to be explained rather than the weight of explanation that we have. I personally am uncomfortable with the degree of techno-optimism Um, I think there's like a whole massive underlying assumption that it matters whether safety cases are effective in some almost implied objective sense. What I personally find fascinating is that there are hardly any researchers who care about measuring effectiveness. And that says to me that effectiveness is not, in fact, the object of interest here. If effectiveness for 30, 50 years has not driven what the techniques are, then it's not going to suddenly change As researchers start to get more interested in effectiveness, what we really need to understand is how do we keep adopting these techniques and how is effectiveness so irrelevant? And that's why I think the really interesting thing is the sort of broader theories of safety that say, you know, maybe the reason for doing these activities never was about making systems safer. Maybe it's to meet some other organizational need or some other psychological need or some other social need.
0: And I think absolutely right, Drew. I think that's a perfect segue into the practical takeaways because what you've talked about there, I suppose we spent a lot of time thinking about and we discussed in episode 50 on safety work versus the safety of work because we saw these other needs in, in organisations that related to safety work activities. And so the first practical takeaway that I'd, I'd probably suggest to you, if, if you're in an organisation that uses safety cases or even safety management plans or even even though we've talked about safety cases today, Pay attention to the language that gets used in your organization around those plans. So I've sat in organizations where the discussion about the safety case has all been about the regulatory approval, not actually, not about what are we learning about our system and what decisions do we need to make to make our system safer? So if the management conversation and the engineering conversation and the regulatory conversation that you're having is actually about what's the timeline of approvals, when does it go to the regulator, how do we make sure that we get it approved, then that's a red. That's a flag for you. Not necessarily a red flag, but that's a flag for you that the the mindset around the safety case activity in your organisation is one of achieving an approval and demonstrating safety. It's not necessarily one of learning about the system and identifying safety improvements. I'd
1: add to that, David. When you find yourself saying things like, "We need to do this because that's what the regulator expects," and using those that sort of end approval as your justification for. Making changes and doing or not doing things. You, I, I have directly heard language in the organisation say, "You know, why are you spending time on that? The regulator doesn't care about that." Or you know, if you don't do this, then it's not going to get approved. And to sort of ask yourself, okay, so what does that say about why we do what we do? Why is the language that and not do this because it's safer, or do this because the evidence says it works?
0: Yeah, particularly an example of, "Oh, we need to go and talk to the workforce." Because we need to be able to keep a record to demonstrate to the regulator that we've done consultation with this revision of the safety case, rather than we're actually going to go and talk to the workforce because we want to learn about you know the current state of the system so that we can actually learn about what we might need to explore more further with this, with this safety case revision. So pay attention and, and use our episodes on ethnographic interviewing techniques and, and things like that to just pay attention to how safety work activities in your organisation get actually talked about, because that's... That'll give you some insight. Um, research that I don't think we've spoken about yet on the podcast, maybe, Drew, my ethnography paper. I did that with safety professionals when I asked them why they were doing a certain work activity and really just listened for what objective they are actually trying to meet with that particular activity. Uh, and it's really insightful as to what the motivation and what the drive is for the work outcome that people are trying to achieve.
1: I guess the next one is where you have a practice like a safety case, uh, perhaps you're in an organisation that is adopting them or expanding their use, then don't just focus on how do we do it. You Very often when there's a new technique around, the focus is how do I learn how to do this? How do I learn how to review this? How do I learn how to do this properly? Think instead, what is the need within my organization that this practice is capable of meeting? And think about whether the practice meets your needs, not whether you are correctly implementing the practice. Um, and we know that with safety cases, there is not a lot of evidence that they meet specific needs. So it is very likely that they're going to need to be, ado- You know, if, even if they do work, it's going to be very context dependent. It's going to be about how they work for you in your organization with your problems.
0: Yeah. And from the, from the evidence base, if, if people are very strong with their claims about safety cases, so if people are very convinced that they they work or very convinced that a particular technique is the most effective technique, then... You should ask them a few more questions because the evidence doesn't really stack up. The evidence doesn't really provide support for someone to hold that strength of belief, unless, like James mentioned, maybe there's a bit of a vested interest in why a certain a certain technique is being being promoted or why a certain belief is being held.
1: And the final takeaway we've got here, uh, David, if you'll excuse me, mangling your f- phrasing, when some people say you know lack of evidence for this, the other side of that is lots of opportunity to learn really really interesting things. <laughs> So if you're looking for research to do or just you're a professional looking for stuff to learn more about safety, safety cases are a wide open field. Um, There are lots of really interesting things to learn, uh, not just about safety cases, but because of the sort of meta approach they take, they have the opportunity to teach us a lot about how we think about safety and how other safety activities work and fit together as well. If we spend a bit of time trying to understand how exactly they work in our organizations.
0: Yeah, I, I totally agree. And as a researcher or, or as a practitioner, you know, this is this is meant to be a safety work activity, uh, the, the development and maintenance uh, of a safety case, which is meant to be the consolidated safety viewpoint on our major hazard uh, systems and technologies all around the world. So as safety practitioners and as safety researchers, um, understanding exactly how... These practices work and, and, and what needs they're met and, and, and how people experience those processes and what they get out of them and what what the limitations of these processes are should be kind of at the forefront of our agenda, I think, Drew.
1: So let's throw that directly as a question to our listeners and invite you to share, you know, what is your experience with safety cases? How have they influenced your work? Have you been had external demands to do them? Have you tried them because you had a need that you thought they might meet? Is there a particular way that you have decided to do them or been asked to do them in a particular way? And rather than sort of asking that big effectiveness question, what is the like local effect and mechanisms? What has changed as a result of starting to do the safety case? What other sort of impacts have you seen them have?
0: Because I know there's um, some organisations that actually adopt uh, this idea of voluntary safety case, where even when there's no regulatory regime requirement for it, they've adopted the practice uh, voluntarily almost as a self-imposed requirement for their for their operations. And so I'd love to hear from people who who have gone to do that because then, you know, in some respects, it takes a lot of that regulatory influence out of the process and be really interesting to see whether a voluntary safety case process runs differently to a regulatory safety case process at a local level inside the company, Drew. So that's it for this week. We hope you found this episode thought-provoking and ultimately useful in shaping the safety of work in your own organisation. Thanks for everyone's understanding with uh, with the move to fortnightly. We'll uh, we'll make this work for the next 70 or so episodes, and then we might uh, we might revisit it again. So please send any comments, questions, or ideas for future episodes to feedback at safetyofwork.com.